You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So, Paul, we usually start our episode by recording a small intro. Uh, If it was me doing it, we'd say, hey, this is Doc G, and this is the What's Up Next podcast. Uh, So we'll go ahead and have you say that. I'll have you go on three, okay? On three, two, one. Go ahead. Hey, this is Ready Investor One. Oh, wait, my name is, try to try that again. Okay. All right. You know, sometimes I have people actually write it down. It's the What's Up Next podcast. I got it. I'm sure I got it. Don't worry. All right. On three, two, one. Hey, this is Paul David Thompson, and you're listening to the What's Up podcast. Oh, it was so close. It sounded good, but it's the What's Up Next Oh, the What's Up Next. Everybody makes that mistake, don't they? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've had that one before. All right. On three, two, one. Hey, this is Paul David Thompson, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. Welcome to What's Up Next, where your hosts, Paul David Thompson and Doc G, take the discussion on topics in the financial independence movement to the next level. Guest panelists share their opinion to questions that don't have clear answers to help you refine your path to financial independence. Welcome. This is Paul David Thompson from Ready Investor One. And this is Doc G from Diversify.com. So, Doc, what's up next? Hey, isn't that my line? It is, but I decided to abscond it from you today. All right. Well, it makes sense because today we're mixing it up a little bit and we're going to turn the microphones around to focus on my co-host and ask the intriguing question, who is Paul David Thompson? Paul, you ready to be on the hot seat? I'm not sure how intriguing it is, but let's do it. All right. Well, let's start from the beginning. Um, if I'm correct, you were born the son of a Baptist minister. Talk about your childhood a little bit. Yeah, I was. So uh, we moved around a lot. My dad is a Baptist preacher, and he did a lot of mission work. And we was all domestic in the U- in the U.S., but we lived in four or five different states over the the age of oh, while I was growing up. So we every on average every three or four years we would move. And I don't think we ever stayed in place longer than six years, if memory serves. And so fortunately, I did get to go to high school all in one place. But there was a time in the middle of high school, which would have been horrible, that our family was in a place where they were considering moving from Texas to wherever my dad found a calling. And in, in our faith, the way we refer to it is, it's, it's called it in mission of a call. And so you're always looking for a place to where you feel like you're being called to serve in your ministry. And it just brings you all over the place. It just takes you all over the place. And of course I was brought along with them naturally and I'm an only child. So I got really used to being the, this, the quiet guy in the corner who uh, was kind of comfortable in my own skin, but I was just naturally just for some reason shy. And I kept myself a lot because often didn't make a lot of sense to spend a whole lot of time developing friendships that you were going to turn around and leave in a couple of of years. And as you get older, that becomes harder and harder to do. And I very much value and cherish the fact that I got to move around so much because I got to see different aspects of the world. And I think that's just, or at least of the US, and that's kind of helps give you perspective. So I lived in the Midwest, I lived in New Mexico, I lived in the South. So that's kind of the three regions where we spent most of our time. And I really enjoyed that part of it. But once you get into junior high and high school, that's tough if you're moving around too much. So thankfully, we we settled in Texas 
after around junior high. And so through junior high and high school, I stayed in Texas and my parents are actually still there. So did you buy into this religious calling? Did the feeling, the feeling of moving around all the time, was it natural for you or did you resent it a little bit? I did not resent it at all when I was young at all. I, I, I very much bought into it when, when you're six through 12, it's where my formable years of memory started forming and I, that's all you know. And so it's, it's, and I was, and the big takeaway is that my parents cherished and loved me and I love and cherish my parents and we had a good family dynamic. So that was working. That, that was no problem with that. It's not until you get older, you're starting to try to find yourself and you start trying to connect with other peers of your, your age group. That's when it gets tough. And thankfully I had a really strong group of friends that I developed in Texas where I, where I went to high school and that's where I, was able to stay put for a while. So I kind of got the best of both worlds. I got to move a lot. And then really when I needed to not move, we settled down. Now, I imagine the lifestyle of a traveling Baptist minister's family was fairly meager. Did your family talk about money? Was it okay to discuss financial issues? It wasn't a taboo subject at all. Uh, I will actually give my credit, my parents a lot of credit for being fairly open about money and that what they instilled in me were two big things is don't ever get in a credit card debt and two, you're going to college. And I, I was the only, I was the first person of my family from both chains to get a four-year degree. And that was just a given from the, my earliest childhood is that you're going to college. And that was the plan that I followed. And, you know, I, given the alternative, I, I don't know what I would have done because it was just never, an option really to think about that way. But money was tight and it was a kind of a life of, I'll say scarcity for lack of a better term, but there was always, you're always looking for where you're going to get money for the, for the next bill or the next big unexpected expense. We, our expenses were covered, but the, the, those unexpected things were always uh, tight for my parents, I think. Looking back knowing what you know now, do you think your parents modeled good financial behavior? For the most part, yes, I would say largely they did. The The only thing that they didn't do that I have come to do now is to get into entrepreneurship and to look for opportunities for earning income outside of the your working wage. My parents were the working wage type of of class of people, and there's no shame in it. You know, they're they're the salt of the earth, and they're working hard. But this idea of investing, the difference that is, I think, was foreign, and is not that that wasn't the topic that they knew anything about. So that was hard for them to impart to me. I want to talk a little bit about the shyness that you mentioned. As I've known you as an adult, I see you with this great entrepreneurial spirit. And I really think of you as I think of myself as a communicator. That doesn't sound like the shy kid you're describing. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that. Are you the same person you were back then? No, not at all. I, I, <laughs> I, you would not recognize the person that I was when I was in, even in college. I, I was cripplingly shy. Uh, so I, I had a speech impediment. I had, I had a mild stutter and I had acne and I just was not filling my own, my own <laughs> skin very well. Uh, I, I was still learning what it was to be me and to find your place in the world. And I just didn't know how to talk to people. I, I was, I was a classic introvert that if you ask me something and something that I know anything about, then I could talk. But to have me get in front of the of a stage and just start talking without any kind of prep or to be the life of the room, that is not me. And even still, that uh, big crowds, I, I get a little uncomfortable in and I, I still have to work through that a little bit to put myself out there in big crowds. I, I do much better in smaller settings, you know, kind of like the campfire things that we do where there's like 30, 40 people and then we kind of spread out and there's like little small clusters. I do much better in that setting. Whereas a, like a FinCon that has two or 3,000 people or like last week I went to social media marketing world, like 6,000 people there and I didn't really know that many people. Oh my gosh, that was, I mean, that was pushing myself out of the comfort zone big time. Talk a little bit about how you dealt with the speech impediment. At what age did it really become obvious and did you do speech therapy or how did you deal with it? So yeah, I did do speech therapy. I remember it being the 
as soon as I remember talking, I remember having a bit of a stutter. And as you, as is common with people who have a stutter, as you get between, and I'm just making this up between six and 12, it gets worse. And, and that tends, tends to be when it's the worst. And as you become an adolescent, you, a lot of people just kind of naturally work out of it. Some people have trouble with it for years or for their entire lifetime. But fortunately I was able to go to speech therapy and I, I wish I knew what the, the therapy actually did for me. I think it was just practice <laughs> and confidence, a lot of it. And, and you typically grow out of it. And even now when I think about it, I tend to stutter. When I don't think about it, I tend not to stutter. So I, I have to, I still have a, you know, once out of every thousand words, I have a kind of unconscious stutter perhaps, but it's, I don't think about it. It's not a, it's not part of my identity anymore. When I was six to 12, it was, it was something that I was constantly having to work through and that I'm sure contributed to my shyness. Do you think some of that shyness and the speech impediment changed what you were interested in, in high school and college? Oh, it's a good question, doc. I don't know. I was always into sports and athletics and then math and science. So I was naturally, you know, comfortable at school. I'm not sure I was overly gifted, but I was comfortable. I could, if you can give me an assignment, I mean, and, you know, read this book and do these problems, uh, that, that was good for me. I, I, I thrive when someone says, here's a path, follow the instructions. I can follow instructions. And do the problems. I, I did well at that. So, and that's what school is. And so I, I did pretty well doing that. And I don't think the shyness impacted that because I felt comfortable doing, I felt confident doing, doing the work. It was only when I was uh, expected to do like speech or I, and one thing I regret from high school that I didn't do is I did not go into debate because I didn't go into debate because I was afraid of it. So instead I went into broadcast journalism where I was holding the camera behind the camera and they wanted me to actually be on one of the anchors, you know, the, the broadcast journalism anchors. And I was like, <laughs> no way. Am I going to do that? It sounds like even from a young age, this need to communicate, the need to connect with people was there. And yet it seems like something was holding you back. Is that fair? That is a completely fair. And it's, in fact, I'm not sure I've ever really put that to the, those terms. So it's an insightful com comment there. Uh, yes, I, I do like people and I like connecting with people and getting to know people on a personal level. And I've always been drawn to that. And the part of my life that I enjoy the most now is that I get to control who I spend my time with. And part of my kind of personal mission is to help find people that want to engage and change their life. And I like it because I get to connect with the people. I like getting to talk to interesting people. It's why this podcast is so interesting. All the guests that we have on here, except for me, of course, are, <laughs> are, are, really interesting people and they're, they've put a lot of time to put their thoughts out into some sort of media. And I really find that interesting. So how do you connect that to becoming a computer engineer? Because that's what eventually you did when you came out of college. Again, to me, that sounds a lot more technical. Yeah. Um, something that maybe an introvert would do more. Whereas what you're doing now seems incredibly extroverted. And that was kind of what I was trying to get with in some of those beginning questions about that shyness and the speech impediment is, was being a computer engineer your passion or was it kind of a holding place until you actually discovered what you wanted to do with your life? Yeah, you nailed that point. Yes. Yeah. So, and it took me a long time to figure this out probably within the, just the last five years, probably. So yes, be, the way I became an engineer was that I was good at math and science. When I was in school, math and science came naturally to me. So, and I kind of liked it. And so I wanted to get a degree. I wanted to, a big part of it was I wanted a marketable degree that I could get out of school and get a job making an income that was greater than the, the station in life that I came from. That was a big motivation for me. It was for my parents as well. And they were very proud of me when I did that. And I went out and got a job and I graduated in 2000 and I got a job for, I think, $45,000 or something. And to me, that was big, big money. I, I, that, I mean, I don't know if my parents even to this day have ever made that much in, in, in a year together. And I don't know exactly. Um, but that, that's not unreasonable to say that they wouldn't have made that much. And so I was making close to or above what they have made in any one year, my first year out of college. That changed the socioeconomic class that I was in significantly. And that was a big deal. But what I discovered, and it took me like 15 years to figure that out, is 
that was my zone of competence. I didn't have the words for it until recently, but uh, from reading a, a book called The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. And he uses this term like the zone of incompetence, the zone of competence, the zone of excellence, and the zone of genius. And we all need to be finding our zone of genius. Well, when I was becoming an engineer or becoming a computer engineer, I was probably finding my zone of competence, maybe excellence, but somewhere in that range. And I did that for 15 years and it was a very marketable, actually 17 years, 15 years before I started getting out, um, 15 to 17 years of working in the corporate world. That was a holding place. I love the word that you used there because that was what I didn't know anything else better to do. And even from the very beginning, when I graduated and got a job, I actually went through a bit of a depression over, oh wait, my life plan is over now and I'm 22 years old and I, yeah, I'm making a good income, which I enjoy, but is this it for the next 40 years? You kind of face down this barrel of this working world for 40 years, but I didn't know any alternatives. And I even looked into financial freedom and, and retiring early then that was in the early two thousands. And I didn't have the words that we have for it now, but I started and what I, where, I, where I found it was the Motley Fool. So at the time the Motley Fool was free and it's right when the internet was kind of coming to its own and the, the movers and shakers at Motley Fool were pretty early on developing content around that on the internet. And I consumed it like crazy until the point three or four years later when they made it a paid program. And I just started investing in index funds way back then, but I didn't know to save 50% of my income. I wish I had known that I, I saved you know, 10 or 20% of my income. And I thought I was doing well. So it sounds to me like your zone of genius was there from the beginning, from your earliest years. And yet there was always something getting in the way of it, yep. right? So there was the shyness, the speech impediment. And then eventually as you got older and went to college, you almost settled for your zone of competence. Yep. And interestingly enough, your zone of genius was still trying to break through. You were going and finding the Motley Fool and thinking about financial independence way before anyone else was, why didn't it stick at that point? The idea of taking that content or taking anything like that and sharing it publicly did not occur to me. I did share it with people locally. I've always, and I've just only recently discovered this as, as in writing the book that I've just published. In writing that, I actually discovered this, that codified my zone of genius that said that I would find big idea information, find big ideas, and then share them with people. And that is my zone of genius. And it's usually around something technical like real estate or finance or money. And that's my kind of niche, I guess you'd say. So yes, I've been doing that ever since I was in high school. I would always be the guy that would, that would go to the corner and pull over a couple of people and I would explain back what the teacher just said because that was my way of really knowing that I knew the teacher. So I was always kind of this GA wherever I went. I did that in chemistry class. I would go in, into the, which was a kind of like a, a, a in, in college, our chemistry class was the way of cutting people out. And we would go to the, the, the study lounge and there would be GAs there to help. And always there was 15 people w waiting for each GA. So I would just take the position of a GA. I wasn't saying I was one, but I would, I would fulfill that function of just sharing the information that I'd learned. And then it's like, if you don't trust me, you know, it, I'm just a student, but you can go ask him, but I think I got it right. And I was always doing that. It's always been what I've done. And so now I'm doing that with financial independence and real estate. It sounds like you were comfortable sharing locally at that point, yes. but yet hadn't yet built the confidence uh, to speak to a larger crowd. Right. Um, you in a lot of your masterminds and on your other podcast make a lot of references to the matrix. <laughs> and I find this interesting because at some point in your life, you must have stepped out of the matrix. So what was your aha moment, right? So you're out there, you've got your zone of competence, you're making more money, you've reached that level of excellence in your family. Uh, you, you have to be feeling kind of good at that, about that. But on the other hand, you're not really speaking to who you are, which is this great communicator who hasn't yet flowered, who hasn't learned how to communicate on a broader level. When, when did you step out of the matrix? Yes, and I, there was a moment and I, I, it's very clear to me and it was in 2015, I think I was 37 years old, if I'm doing the math right. And I was at a beach vacation. And I remember the moment very clearly. I, I could, I, the, the waves were crashing in, the seagulls were there, and my kids were asking me for to stay another week at the vacation. They want, it was time to go. And 
I said, no, I just shut them down. It's like, we can't stay longer. I have to go back to work. I mean, I made it very clear. Daddy has to go back to work. And then that kind of irked me, but it wasn't a big deal. It's kind of normal life. And then the next morning we were packing up to go. And as I was driving out of away from the beach, I could see it in the background in my rear view mirror. And my kids were in the same view and they were kind of slumped over, kind of resigned to their fate. And that moment caught me really heavy. And I kind of felt like a failure because I thought to myself, what am I teaching my kids? I mean, I, I am, I know there's more in me and I'm leading a default lifestyle, which is the words I've come up with now, but the time was just a feeling. It was like, I just felt small and insignificant and I wasn't living my own dreams. I was living, I was helping build somebody else's dreams, some corporation's dreams and not my own. And my own was to spend more time with them. And I was here, they were asking me to spend more time with them. And I couldn't because I hadn't designed my life so that I could. And that was the moment that something about that just triggered in me. And so I went back to work. It was like a 10 hour drive back. And I just stewed in that for about 10 hours. Me and my wife kind of talked it out and we, I kind of put some words to it. And I thought, I've got to do something smarter. I've got to do something better. And that's when I started searching for a way out. Because what I've been doing by investing and index funds and putting them in, you know, my qualified retirement plans was all great. And I kind of looked at those tallies and I thought, well, you know, it's not doing bad, but I could have been doing more all along and I haven't done that enough. You know, it hadn't hit me that I should be doing more earlier. So I thought, how can I supercharge that? And so my choice was to go into real estate after doing a lot of other research. That was something I could do a little bit on the side while still maintaining my job. All right. So most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor, and it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later... You have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. 
And why do you think it's stuck this time? Because again, you mentioned this search and finding the Motley Fool, uh, and that didn't stick, right? It, it wasn't, maybe it wasn't severe enough at that time right. that at some point you could go back to what felt comfortable. But why do you think it's stuck this time? It, it's the pain. Uh, it, you have to have that emotional trigger deep down in, in you that just pisses you off so much. The thing about the current state of the working world and working in corporate America for most people is that it's not bad enough. It's so insidious how it's just okay. It's not perfect, but you know, compared to the most of the world, we live like kings and queens. I mean, we, we have wonderful lives. And so there's nothing to really to complain about. And you hear that notion, like, be happy with what you got. And yeah, of course you should be. Be very thankful for your, for your work and, and your opportunity to get to work and the, the freedom that we have in our country. But at the same time, there's a great possibility for abundance just on the other side of a few decisions if you're willing to make them. So you look into real estate and you start learning about it how soon after you got into real estate did you actually lose your job? I think it was two and a half years. So I bought my first property in the August, September time from 2015 and I was laid off in November of 2017. So just a hair over two years. Yeah. And were you ready at that time to transition to full-time real estate investor or were you kind of pushed into it? I was a l little bit pushed into it, but I, I was ready emotionally and psychologically. I was ready for it. I, I wanted out of my job. I mean, I had senioritis in my job big time. Um, I really, but, but I was building my, my, my passive sources of income or my alternative sources of income. I've actually switched from using the word passive now into residual because people get really hung up on the word passive. Uh, it's residual sources of income, income that doesn't require my time directly in, in accordance to get the, some sort of wage. So now it's, it's income from doing deals or having rental income or having note income from, from being in the, the real estate world. So that is where my income comes from now. Like 90% of my income comes from that. So that is what I, was building towards and I was prepared to quit in January of 2018, but I was laid off in November. And I don't really know if I would have had the chutzpah to actually resign. And I, I will never be able to answer that. Unfortunately, it's part of my story that I, that I don't like is that I wish I had actually built this to two and a half years or three years and then walked in because I had my resignation letter written out for two years. I mean, I, I was ready. <laughs> um, but was I financially ready with, with the income? Turns out I was, but I didn't know that going into it. And that's something that I've, I kind of sometimes coach people with is you're actually earlier, you're ready earlier on than you often realize, especially when you realize that you don't have to replace all your income, you just have to replace your expenses. Especially when you're doing real estate, so much of your income is sheltered by your tax advantages that you don't actually need as much income as you thought you did. In our community, when we talk about, you know, quote unquote, doing real estate, mm -hmm. uh, it's almost a black box, right? We yeah. talk about doing it. And then there's that segment of us who've done it before and kind of understand what that means. Right. And everyone else has no idea. It's just a black box. Tell me a little bit about how you learned about real estate. And specifically, I think you had a mentoring uh, relationship that yeah. helped you out along quite a bit. Yeah, that was an interesting story there, Doc. So I'm glad you brought that up. So, yes, yeah, so I went down the rabbit hole when it came to real estate. And so, and it is a black box, just like anything worth that has any kind of worth to it. There's just this big, long, deep chasm that you can go down and there's all these kind of niches you can find. So what, what I did is I studied on bigger pockets and the internet and YouTube and all these kind of places, podcasts like crazy. I just really studied. And one of the most common pieces of advice was find a mentor, not one of these like, you know, $50,000 a year mentor. Most people aren't ready for that. Even if it's a good deal, even if it's a good service, most people are not ready for that. If you're a beginner, you, it's very helpful to find somebody who's been there and done that and they'll kind of shepherd you their way through. And so what I did is I sent an email to a local investor is about an hour away from here. And so I, I didn't think I would be competing in his market, but he was in Arkansas, which is where I live. And so he would know the state laws and maybe he would kind of bring me under his wing if I presented myself in the proper way. And so I sent him an email saying, yes, I would be interested in learning more about real estate. I've done this, you know, you know corporate world thing, you know, I'm, I'm hard worker, but I'm willing to exchange my time, access to deals, whatever, if you'll help me learn. And he called me back 
two weeks later. And he's kind of a, a interesting uh, old old bird is what I would refer to him as. Uh, he's he's very much into mindset. And he said, yeah, I'll be happy to help you. I don't charge anything. I'm not trying to sell you anything. But what I do want you to do is I want you to go get the richest man in Babylon, buy that book and read it, highlight it, underline the parts that you like, and then write me a three-page handwritten essay and then mail it to him. Like that is a odd request. I almost had to kind of pinch myself. Is like, is this, you know, like something from the movies? I mean, it's like a trick or something. And no, he was very sincere and serious about it. That was the way he would filter people out. And he required it to be handwritten because he said there have been people who didn't, who just typed it out and sent it to him and he wouldn't read it. He would not read it until he had taken the time to hand write your essay. What is so interesting about that is I went on to write seven or eight essays for him and about three or four essays into it. I was reading the book by a book by Jim Rohn. The, I always forget the name of it. The seven habits for profitability and wealth or something like that. Wealth and power. Um, it's a really good book. Uh, one of the classics that I think are often overlooked and, and I think it's overlooked because the, the, the title is hard to remember. But anyway, when I was going through that essay and writing it, the act of actually writing it out helped me kind of come to a discovery that I still had a lot of ego built into what I was writing. I thought I was something that would boil down to it. And I had to kind of strip that away and realize, no, you're not, you're not something. You just got a job. If you want to become an entrepreneur, you have to really put yourself out there. And that was a big moment for me to realize that I need to put my ego aside and how smart I think I is, are, are the accomplishments that I was talking about, about in, about in the corporate world. Those don't matter. It just, they aren't relevant anymore. What you're doing now going forward is what's relevant. And that was a big discovery for me. So having that mentor, I'm not sure how long that would have taken me to actually find that on my own. Yeah, I've heard you describe it as like a Mr. Miyagi moment, right? Talking about the (laughs) karate kid and the wax on, wax off. It sounds like this guy had done this before. Was the purpose of the book reports to let go of your ego? Or or what do you think it was about actually handwriting and and literally snail mailing him? Uh, Yeah, Yeah. that was the method to behind his madness. And and that method was to see if you were coachable, see if you were determined and see if you would actually take the time and the, make the commitment to actually do that. And that is what I've learned from the clients that I've worked with and the people that I've helped is it boils down to the commitment. I cannot bring the commitment. If they want it badly enough, it's there for them and I'll shepherd them on the way through how to do it. And I'll, I'll, I'll show you how and what to do, but you have to bring the why. And that's really what it boils down to. You know, we talked about the idea of being a computer engineer as a way station in your journey. And in some ways, I kind of wonder if real estate in itself is also a way station uh, to something greater. Are you passionate about real estate? Is anyone passionate about real estate? There are people, I have met people who are passionate about real estate, both on the retail side and the investor side. But no, I would not say I am passionate about real estate. I am passionate about the results that it provides for me. I enjoy being a deal maker. I very much, I I would say that's my zone of excellence is being a deal maker and knowing the the technical details of how to put together deals in creative ways that most people don't see. But my zone of genius is in finding information and sharing it with other people. That that's what I have found. What I naturally do that. And one of the questions that I was going through when I was kind of doing the self discovery is, you know, what are things that people tend to say about you? Or what are things that tend to, uh, that you just are naturally curious about? Or what are things that you just are drawn to do whether or not you're getting paid for it or not? And for me, whether or not I was getting paid for not, it was always finding some information, learning something, taking, doing it, testing it to see if it worked, and then sharing it with somebody else. And that's just kind of the philosophy I live by now is I learn, I invest, and I enrich. So when you describe your zone of genius, helping people find information. That sounds a lot like why you started your first podcast, Ready Investor One. Tell us a little bit about that podcast and the thinking behind it. The thinking behind it was one, I wanted to become an influencer and find more people to engage with and find interesting people. And I want to help. I mean, my mission has become to empower as many other people to escape their W-2 if they wish. Because the, the power that, that has given me in my life is, and, and the quality of my life has changed 180 degrees when I no longer have to exchange my time for money. So 
and now what I do is I work and I might make some money off of it, but I don't really do it primarily for the money. Uh, what, what I do now is I try and find uh, somebody who needs some sort of, that, that they have a problem and they just can't solve it. And I, I have the answer and I want to show it to them. And so the podcast was a way for me to get that out there into the world so that I could start establishing my credibility, practice on the presentation skills that I'm working on. And it was also the lowest barrier to entry to actually do that. YouTube's a little bit harder because you've got to figure out how to do the editing and the marketing. And it's just a little bit harder level of, of influence media. Whereas podcasts, it's all audio. There's only thing that I mean, and I know that there are people who are in their cars in windshield university driving to work that are just dying to hear something that they haven't heard before. And that's why I listen to podcasts. That's why I listen to podcasts. Yeah, I love that. Windshield University. I think that's such a, a fitting description. I think a lot of people hear stories like yours and it resonates with them, but they also wonder, you know, could it be true for them? I think it'd be interesting for you to describe what your weeks look like nowadays. We know what they look like as a computer engineer. You probably had to be up and out at the office and were fulfilling some type of nine to five, rushing mm -hmm. home, making dinner, putting the kids to sleep, that kind of thing. What does life look like today uh, compared to before? Okay, so I probably spend on average about 10 hours a, a month working on actual real estate deals. Wait, and wait, let me stop you there. 10 hours a month on real estate. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And most of that is in actually finding new deals. It's not in managing the existing deals because I have a team for that. You know, I have a property management team. I have contractors and I have agents and people who take care of problems. I mean, my philosophy is that in real estate, when you own property, that everything can be solved by a phone call and a, and a, and a checkbook. And so I may not be actually writing checks, but the idea is that money in a phone call solves every problem. I am not using my back to go fix a problem. I'm not doing tenants and toilets and I'm not doing that sort of thing. I don't even so much as screw in a light bulb in one of my houses. I, there are houses even in Little Rock where I live 12 miles from here that I own and I have yet to ever see with my own eyes. I, I have people I've trust to go see them and I've seen all kinds of pictures and videos of them, but I run that as though there are people who are in California investing in Arkansas and could I do it the same way? Because a lot of the people I end up working with are further afield and they're trying to buy properties that cash flow in the Southeast or Midwest and they're doing long distance investing. And if I can't do it, then why should they? In fact, today I'm closing on a property in Jackson, Mississippi. Next week I'm closing on a house in Texas and I'm closing on a property. Or I closed on a property in Georgia a couple of weeks ago. The point is I can invest further afield, but I have very specific ways I do that. And I find the person inside the, of that market to help me. It's not about the market. It's about the people who can help me. Yeah. So this is that whole conversation about passive income versus residual income. When you're doing what you do, you front loaded a lot of the work in the beginning, learning how to do this. So right. it might've taken hours and hours, even years to put all your processes in place once you were able to do that and you front loaded a lot of hard work in the beginning, you're now able to get residual income. And I think people miss that a lot when we talk about quote unquote passive income. So we know you spend about 10 hours a week on real estate. How do you use the rest of your time? It's 10 hours a month on real estate. So sorry, 10 hours so a month. Two, two or two or on average two to three hours a week. Um, and that's usually just uh, phone calls and, and paperwork. So the rest of the time is thinking about content creation. So I am trying to become a content influencer. I want to connect with people that have the same problem I had, which was they worked in a job or they're working in a job that they don't find rewarding and they want some way out. And the answer is investing. We all know the answer is investing. And the, and the question is what kind of investing are you going to do? And so there are lots of good reasons. And one thing I am not about is being religious about what particular type of investment or asset you should invest in. You pick the one that suits your personality. And that's one of the things I cover in the book that I just wrote is that you can go down the, the stock investing, you can go down, which is index investing for us, or you can go down the real estate or you can start your business. And any combination of those three is your, are your choices for the average person like you and me and whoever's listening to this. Those are your choices. So 
I go deep down the rabbit hole on how to uh, do real estate. And it's a very deep subject. And I, I could, and even within that, I tend to focus primarily on single family, not multifamily or commercial. And that's a deep subject in its own right. So I spend my time doing YouTube videos, doing a podcast, and then getting that content out there and promote it, which is very much what I'm in the learning phase of is how to promote content. I'm getting better at creating content. Now I need to actually find somebody to look to watch it. <laughs> Let's talk about the book a little bit. What's your running title and what do you tackle? Okay, good question. So, okay, so the running title of, it's not a running title, the official title of the book is Escape Your Money Mindset to Freedom Using Either Stocks, Real Estate Investing, or Starting a Business. So it's kind of long-winded, but the point of that is, is that you want to escape from an unrewarding job using these techniques. And those are the three techniques that are out there. I'm trying to solve people's problems. You can invest in stocks using the simple method that we all talk about is in index investing. You can choose your own stocks if you want to. That's a, that's a path. The, the second major path is your real estate, which is what I've done. And you can pick your niche within real estate. And then the third one is starting a business. And I kind of, I have this like an analogy of what the, each of those are. So starting an indexing, index investing, that is like getting on a bicycle and it's so easy to learn and you can just go and it's so easy. It is the simplest form to, to freedom that I know of. However, it's going to take you longer. You can only go so fast. Returns are, you know, they kind of are what they are. You really can't influence them very much. So the other choice is that you can actually start picking your own stocks and try and be Warren Buffett. More power to you. And I can I, I liken that to actually strapping on uh, an electric bicycle on there. You get an extra motor on there. And like you can really go fast. But if you crash, it's going to hurt. So real estate investing is like getting on a Harley. It's loud, it's dangerous, it's not if, but when you're gonna crash. And so you're gonna to have to figure out how to manage that risk. And you can really go fast and you can accelerate your escape velocity by hitting that, you know, going to high gear. And every time you use another gear on, on that motorcycle, you're using more debt. So it's this leverage play that you're having to manage. And then going and starting your own business is like strapping a rocket to your back and you, you lighten the match and you have no idea where it's going to land. It might land you on the other side of abundance or it might go backwards and crash or it might go up in the air and spin around in circles and you can't get off. You just don't know. Right? So that's the, the risk profile, the, the analogy I like to use to kind of get people's heads around which path is best for them. If you don't like risk, then starting your own business is not the choice for you. Maybe even real estate, simple index investing might be better for you. So when does the book drop? April 15th. So by the time this comes out, it'll probably already be available and you might even be able to get it for a buck. So I do this kind of introductory, a dollar thing. So I'm not trying to make a bunch of money off the, off the book. I'm trying to share an idea that freedom is available to you and a life of abundance is available to you. If you just make a few simple choices and I kind of walk you through those choices in the book and give you some analogies like what I just shared. And you can get that in, you know, from the Kindle store or Barnes Noble or wherever you like to go. You and I recorded recently a panel about book writing. Uh, how did you find the process? Was it easier or more difficult than you thought it would be? It was harder to do than I thought it would be. I knew it would be hard. But it was even harder. And what I have learned about myself is that I am a high upstart personality and low follow through personality. So I get an idea and I can go 80% of the way through it. And then that 20% to actually get it finished it's not my personality. That's not where I thrive. And so that was going through and editing it and making sure the flow was right and having the references and blah, all that stuff. Um, that is crucial, uh, so crucial, but to me it's just so tedious and not something I find rewarding. However, I made it through that part. And the, the saying that I've heard the most with writing that I, that I kind of connect with the most is I don't like writing, but I like having written. And in the past, I've heard you talk about big, hairy, audacious goals. When it comes to the book, what is your big, hairy, audacious goal for it and its success? Well, the success that I want from the book is for it to connect with people. And I am, my intent for that book is for it to be the current generation's rich dad, poor dad, but I know which, which is audacious, let me tell you. But I'm not trying to be somebody, Some I'm not trying to be, the, the author of Rich Dad Poor Dad, I'm trying to be the, the person who creates something that connects with what's relevant in today's world. Because some of the things that are from Rich Dad Poor Dad aren't all that relevant anymore. They're still relevant, but, but, but they don't connect with the modern age as much as they used to. And 
this this idea that you have to find some sort of passion to be profitable it is it's not something that I necessarily believe is the case and I don't think that stock investing is wrong I mean, which is what um, the author would say so why is that the case well think about what people want and I'm not trying to sell a bunch of books and create a company around the back end of that book instead what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to connect with people and serve them so that they have this kind of mindset shift like I had it's all about mindset So, Paul, when I look at the timeline of your life, I see that shy kid moving from city to city on one side. Somewhere in the middle, I see the computer engineer who hasn't quite found his zone of genius. And I see the Paul Thompson of today, the communicator, the podcaster, the guy who leads masterminds. So, I'm wondering... Where does the timeline go from here? What's up next for Paul Thompson? What's up next for Paul Thompson? Uh, good question. It's like we've asked this before. So, uh, yeah. So, what is up next for me is by the time I am 50, I want to have all of my real estate transactions completely paid for. I have no more debt on those. So, I've removed all the potential, I say all, but most of the real risk associated with real estate is with the debt. So, I want to have that wrapped up. So, that's nine years away for me. And at that point, I put everything from a real estate perspective completely on autopilot. I, I won't even have to spend 10 hours a, a day. I want to even be able to have my taxes automated. I mean, I want it to be a, a, a well-oiled machine where I'm not having to think about how to generate more income or great, greater returns. I want that part of my life to be over with. I'll have still a percentage of my income or my assets in uh, stock, uh, the stock market in uh, index funds. So I'll let them ride until I'm 59 and a half and then I'll figure out what to do there. But I will have this like two layers of retirement. So when I'm 50, I retire from a real estate and let it, things automate. And then when I'm 60, I can really, really retire and have like two layers of income coming in there. And so during that time between, um, you know, graduating into this stage of being 50 or 90 or, or 60, kind of that 10 year span, maybe earlier if I can get there, is I want to spend more time connecting with people in the FIRE community, in the real estate investing community. I want to find other investors, people who have this mindset who are have, maybe having trouble. I want to be able to kind of help shepherd them along the way like so many people have done for me. And that's what I'm into next is how to create an influencer platform where I can really connect with people and actually host events where I go on a cruise and I have people come with me. So I've even toyed with the idea of creating the equivalent for FinCon for the fire community. So a fire specific community of people that are going to a conference to go learn and how to find a ways to enrich. Because there's a lot of little steps along the way that you want to learn and people want that connection and they want that specific advice. And I want to be able to give them a place to go and do that. That's part of why we do the podcast now. Part of why I do my personal podcast for real estate is to give people these little nuggets. But sometimes you need someone to kind of connect the dots for you. And that's where those, those conferences or those events make so much sense. And so that's kind of what's toying in my mind. I don't have it all perfectly planned out yet, but that is what's up next. It's this idea of connecting with more people in a larger way so that they can actually take from it what they need. Now, Paul, you're a young guy. In fact, a, a few years younger than I am. Uh, you ever worry that the dreams will run out? No, uh, because is I have more on my, so I have a thing called a life list and anybody who wants to see it can go to my website at, uh, it's free. There's nothing, I'm not trying to sell anything here. It's pauldavidthompson.com slash life list. And that place is where I put my dreams. It's not a to-do list. It's not a bucket list. It is just all these big, hairy, audacious goals. And I have over a hundred things on the list and I will probably not do them all. But the, the, the list of dreams are, are large and some of them are, you know, self-serving. Some of them are just, I want to do something good. One, one of them is writing a book. And so I'm going to go mark that one off on April 15th when it actually publishes. And then there will be probably more books to come after that because I will only get better at writing books and sharing my ideas. So taking your path and your story as a whole, what message will you pass on to your children? That money is not the purpose. I talk about money a whole lot, but I think it is simply the, one of the few triggers that people 
need to overcome one of the, like, it's like the first domino. If you can kind of master that, I can also believe this can be with your, your personal fitness, personal fitness, managing your, your, your budget, your, your financial budget, getting those two things in order and the rest of life kind of falls into place. And it's more about connecting with people, finding people that you really want to be around and, and kind of characterize that as who are the people who would be at your funeral? Those are the people you need to be investing in. Those are the people you need to be sharing your life with. Why are you spending so much time with people who would not even attend your funeral? That's not the kind of connections that you want to make in life. Unfortunately, our lives are fraught with all these contentious relationships with people that really don't really care about you. That's not a life that I think most people want to live. So my message to people, my children included, is to live a life by design and not by default. That sounds like wise advice for the next generation. I'm Doc G, and this is the What's Up Next podcast. I wanted to thank my co-host and today's guest, Paul Thompson. That's a wrap. So, Paul, since you've never been on before, this is a directed panel discussion. So, usually we have multiple panel members, but we couldn't find any losers who wanted to be on with you. So, uh, pretty much we're just going to be talking to you. So, you don't have to worry about talking over anyone, et cetera. I'll be a loser all by myself. Yeah, yeah. We, you, you don't have to. I just couldn't find anyone who wanted to be on. Uh, we run this like a live podcast. Um, part of the reason is the lazy SOB who edits this uh, really does a horrible job. So we want to make sure that Paul doesn't have to work with much. Uh, so we try to make sure we get it on the first try. Uh, but this is not a live podcast, although it may feel like it is. Uh, it isn't which means that if I ask a question that's unclear, et cetera, you can either interrupt me or you can say pass. Uh, if you are too long-winded, however, we may cut your audio together and have you say stupid shit just in the background. So, you know, just be careful. Uh, don't, don't go too far. The other thing is if we ask a question, you feel like you don't, you can't answer it. Uh, it's fine just to make something up, you know, uh, say whatever you want to say. The more sex, drugs, and rock and roll, the better. I'm not interesting enough, so I'll just make it up as I go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Last but not least, we also record both the audio and video. Uh, we don't do anything with the video, but we do reserve the right to cut off your talking head and put it on top of a naked Pam Anderson picture and post it on YouTube. So just be aware that that's part of your agreement. Mm, that, that's, I, I, I can't disagree with that, can I? <laughs> exactly. It's, it's quite entertaining. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.